Attention all personnel. Incoming podcast. This is MASH Matters. We're back. Another episode of MASH Matters, the podcast celebrating the greatest television show of all time, hosted by a guy who loves the show and a guy who was on the show. Who was on the show? Who? Who was on the show? It wasn't me, so that narrows it down to you, Jeff Maxwell. How are you, sir? Me? I was on the show. Oh, yes, I was on the show. That was a lot of fun. I'm okay. I'm fine, thank you. And you? I'm good. Great. Spring is a couple of days away here. It is. This is exciting. A lot of the country experienced what I experienced here in the last month or so. There was a lot of snow and ice and stuff in places where you don't usually see a lot of snow and ice and stuff. So (laughs) I'm thankful that that is in our rear view now. and we can look forward to bigger and brighter things. Indeed. I, of course, I live in Los Angeles, California, so we get nothing. It's 72 degrees here no matter what happens. Yeah. About 364 days a year, mm-hmm. which is the good part. That's why people want to live in Southern California, by golly. Mm-hmm. So uh, we just sit out in the sun and enjoy ourselves. We put on a lot of sunscreen. You always have to do that, protect your skin. Yeah. But we don't get that horrible weather. Well, I think I speak for everybody listening who was in the path of this big winter storm when I say, with all due respect, bite me. (laughs) And I mean that in the nicest possible way, Jeff. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you're allowed to say that on the podcast. Let me get the manual. Where's the man? Manual, come in here. <laughs> you kids are still using the manual? Anyway, we're going to tackle some more listener questions in this episode of MASH Matters. You know, two episodes ago, we had our big table read episode. And if you haven't listened to that, please go listen to it. It was amazing. And some of the nicest comments we have ever received. Thank you so much for all the love. Um, our first question comes from Tim. Just listen to the table read episode. That was fantastic. I really enjoyed hearing the behind the scenes of this iconic show. I plan on watching this episode, but turning down the volume and listening to this table read in the near future. That's an interesting idea. Mm. Tim says, when it comes to table reads, is there a seating hierarchy or is it based on whomever sits where they want? Thanks again for sharing this. So, Jeff, I've seen footage of a MASH table read that was in Michael Hirsch's documentary, Making MASH. Mm -hmm. Harry Morgan was at the head of the table because I believe he was directing that particular episode. Mm -hmm. On either side of the table, right by him, was the main cast and then the uh, supporting cast. And then you even had writers and producers down at the other end of the table. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if that was the same for every table read for MASH or if it was just that one particular one. Did they tell you where to sit or was it just known that these people are going to sit here, those people are going to sit there? Where do people sit? Well, I can certainly speak for myself. They told me to sit in the car, which was, I thought, a little (laughs) troublesome. Uh, because it was hard to hear the other actors while they're going through the lines. But, you know, I had a nice car, so it wasn't that horrible. <laughs> you know, uh, this is a good question, and, and I'll be very uh, transparent here. Because I wasn't at every show, mm-hmm. and because Igor, in some of the uh, shows that Igor was in, the rehearsal process of the table read wasn't as crucial for him to attend as some of the others. So. I wasn't at a lot of table reads. Okay. So I don't actually know if there was a seating hierarchy or not. Hmm. My guess is that it uh, happened organically. 
so that people came in and sat around and from day one, you know, we'll all sit here and you sit here and you sit here just out of, you know, walking up to the table and sitting there. Uh, that probably set the pattern. But I don't, I don't think there was a particular, you know, reserved hierarchy for it. So in other words, there wasn't any nameplate on a particular place. And if somebody was directing it, it might be good for them to sit in some seat that wasn't necessarily right in the middle or somewhere. But it, you certainly, if you had a lot of dialogue and there was stuff going on, you don't want to sit way at the end with all of the producers and writers sitting there. You want to sit up where you can look at the other actors. Right. That's about as smart as I'm going to get with that answer. <laughs> I doubt that I'm going to have any more uh, interesting things to say about it. <laughs> and I'm going to go back in the car now. I'll, I'll be Okay, special. all right. Yeah, we'll page you when your table's ready. Thank you. I know table reads have changed nowadays, and I've seen footage from table reads today and some of the more popular shows. Table reads are more of an event now. You know, they don't just have a table that everybody sits around and they just read through the script. They actually have, you know, a table up on a stage, and the stage is facing chairs, and that's where, you know, the producers and the writers and whoever else, the crew sits, and they all have microphones and they're reading through the script, but it's like a staged reading yeah, in a lot of yeah. ways is what is what it looks like now. And I'm sure in that respect, yes, you they tell you you're going to sit here, you're going to sit here because not everybody is necessarily at the table. You know, it's it's whoever is up on the stage. So table reads now are a lot different, I think, than table reads of the past, from what I understand. It, they very well could be. There's a there's a lot of uh, table work going on throughout show business. <laughs> so <laughs> you just never know where you're going to sit when you get to the table. Right. <laughs> you might be at the kids' table. You might be. <laughs> you're never going to get the darn turkey. It's going to be years. <laughs> So the next wonderful question is, this is a wonderful person who writes from um, County Antrim in Northern Ireland, which is wonderful. It's a wonderful place to be, but I'm not sure what your name is. So here's the way your name is spelled. It's spelled D-E-N-E. Now, Ryan and I have talked about this, and we're not sure whether your name is Dean mm -hmm. or Denny mm -hmm. or Denae. Mm -hmm. uh, so we hope we don't offend you or I don't offend you by mispronouncing your name as uh, Dean or Denny or Denae. Can we just call you Ralph? Hi, Jeff and Roy. Hope you're both well. My name, Ralph from County Antrim in Northern <laughs> Ireland. Thank you, Ralph. We have a friend also there at the same place. Uh, their names are Dean, Denny, and Denae. So you go over and see them. <laughs> So all those folks say, I'm a MASH fan from way back. BBC Two here showed the series in its entirety twice over. It was a huge hit and I had bigger audiences the second time around. That's good. Hmm. Congratulations on the podcast. I only recently discovered, but I'm enjoying catching up a great deal. I wondered if there was any way, please, of you finding the answer to a couple of questions I have about MASH. All right. The first relates to the laugh track. On the BBC, the series played without the laugh track, and the DVDs have the option of watching without. But how come there were two different versions? There's no other TV show I know of where this is the case. They either have a laugh track or they don't. You can't switch the laughter off the Munsters or the Addams Family or Hogan's Heroes, etc. I'd love to know what the thinking behind having the option was. And my other question is, I have a book which has an interview with Gene Reynolds that took place around 1975. He mentions in it that they were about to shoot a test MASH episode on videotape instead of film. I never heard reference to this anywhere else. Was that test ever made? 
Thanks again and continued success with the podcast. So I'm uh, I'm suddenly realizing that this particular uh, set of questions should have been in our previous episode. <laughs> well, that makes it easy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> How about this? How about this? I don't know. So <laughs> next question. <laughs> well, first of all, why they chose to issue the DVDs without the laugh track, I, I couldn't find any information on who made that decision and why they made that decision. And then that kind of got me on the topic of, are there other shows that have done the same thing with their DVD release? And I think the answer is no, not really. I couldn't find other shows that have done this, which is interesting. Why just MASH? Why is it that MASH was released on DVD with that option to turn off the laugh track. My guess is that the producers in negotiating the laugh track release were able to infuse them with that possibility and with that option uh, because they did hate the idea that there was a laugh track. Mm -hmm. I personally, I don't hate it, but they hated it. And, you know, there was no laughing in the uh, OR. Mm -hmm. So my guess is that they were able to negotiate that along with whoever was uh, putting that whole uh, release together, uh, I think somebody had enough juice in there to say, you know, we don't like the laugh track. You do like the laugh track. Give us an option to have it or not. And because DVDs give you that option, I think that was it. So I think it came from some wonderful producer who wanted to preserve the integrity of the show and allow the show to be heard without those laughs. I wish I knew who that was. Me too. Uh, my guess is perhaps uh, Burt Metcalf got together with some of the other writers and maybe made a big push for that. They did have a lot of influence. This was MASH and they were the producers. So they certainly had influence over how these things were going to be released and what was going to happen. So I think that was probably it. That's my guess. The other shows that were mentioned here can't switch the laughter off of the Munsters or the Adams Family or Hogan's Heroes. The thing about MASH is MASH works without the laugh track. That's a true testament to the writing of the show and obviously the the acting of the show. You cannot turn off the laugh track of the Munsters or the Adams Family or Hogan's Heroes. Those shows were set up punchline, set up punchline, set up punchline. <laughs> There's not a lot of nuance in those shows. <laughs> so if you turn off the laugh track of the Munsters, it turns into a completely different show and not in a good way. I think it would ruin those shows by turning off the laugh track. So that's probably why shows like that aren't available with those options. Mm -hmm. Some shows need the laugh track. Yeah. MASH is not one of those shows. It does work without it. What happened to our laugh track? I thought we had... Where, where did Oh, they... that's right. Uh, you guys ready? <laughs> All right, there we go. Yeah, okay. Oh, so the second part of the question. I have a book, was an interview, and he mentions it that they were about to shoot a test with a mash on videotape instead of film. Yeah. Gee, was that ever made? Here's another great answer from Jeff. I have no idea. Yeah, and neither do I. This is the first I've ever heard of that. In fact, I'd love to know what book that is that you have because I have not heard anything about this. Jeff, what's the difference between shooting on videotape and shooting on film? Is there a big difference? Is there a big difference? Yeah. Uh, yes and no. Uh, they both record the stuff that you're pointing the camera at, mm -hmm. but there are different nuances with regard to the style and the theme and the what you want uh, everybody to feel when they see those pictures. Pictures. Mm -hmm. Videotape doesn't have the same ability to uh, create mood as film does. Film, you can do that. You know, I, I don't understand what the benefit to shooting MASH on videotape would have been. 
Maybe it was uh, slightly more convenient because you don't have to process it. Mm-hmm. You can shoot it and you can shoot it numerous times without wasting a lot of film. So maybe economically, there was some interest in that from the networks or studios or somebody said, well, maybe it's cheaper. We shoot on videotape. What the heck? We can make it look good. Mm-hmm. That would be my only guess that it would be an economic decision because it would be cheaper. But it would lose the heart and feel of the picture you're looking at because that was done by very talented lighting guys and and cinematographers who could uh, really infuse the the picture with what they wanted to say along with what was happening on film. You can't quite do as much of that with videotape. Mm-hmm. However, now you can with digital photography. So there are incredibly sophisticated cameras, one of them being the RED camera and another Sony cameras coming out that are able to recreate film look digitally so that you can still shoot 15,000 you know, options of the same scene and it doesn't cost you $100 million like it would have cost on film. Right. But you still get the benefit of a film look. So that's probably the future of shooting things because mm-hmm. the better that gets and the more comfortable, real, real passionate filmmakers feel with it, they're going to go, hey, dump that film. Right. <laughs> you know, we could save a lot of money and it's a lot easier. So, oh, yeah. That would be my take. Yeah. The appearance is different with film and videotape. You know, I, I think back to the same time that MASH was airing on television, it was shot on film and, and shows like Alice and Three's Company, the sitcoms that were filmed in front of audiences, typically those were shot more on videotape. So when you think back and how those sitcoms looked as opposed to how MASH looked, that's a big difference difference too. And I think there's also a a difference with how those tapes age. Videotape doesn't age as well. So you lose some of the visual clarity. Certainly in film doesn't age that well either. Film can turn to talk. (laughs) You open a fan of film that, you know, greatest movie ever made and you open, oh, there's a bunch of chalk in here. What happened to the film? (laughs) And you know, you go back to Lucille Ball. Mm -hmm. I mean, I Love Lucy was shot on film. That was three cameras shot on film. Mm -hmm. It's tricky. Again, I, I don't know, but I I would guess it was somebody came up with the idea was maybe it's going to be cheaper and everybody will be happier and there'll be more profits and so forth and so on. But I, I don't think anybody really took it seriously. But. Speaking of the laugh track, this is from Stan. Hi, Jeff and Ryan. Uh, thanks for the great podcast. I absolutely loved the interview with Marina Bryant. I also caught up with the previous episode, sneaking into the Smithsonian and enjoyed almost all of it, except when my least favorite topic was broached. <laughs> it was the phone message from the learned gentleman about the laugh track. I took great interest as my opinion on the matter seems to be unpopular. I am a fan of the laugh track. Ah. However, I've been tremendously curious about the very question that came up. Who adds it and how? I've sent a link that goes to a response from Stanford Titchler, who is the MASH editor, who talks about it briefly. Carol Pratt is apparently the culprit. Carol would go into Titchler's editing room and plug his laugh box into the switchboard and decide where the laughs go. However, though he was sent there by Fox, Pratt was no studio goon. He was a very accomplished sound engineer who is credited as a pioneer of the laugh track, along with its inventor, Charlie Douglas. His Wikipedia page has a few interesting anecdotes. Most interesting for MASH fans is this. While Pratt was working on MASH, a woman wrote in to producer Gene Reynolds begging him to stop using a laugh track on the show. Ironically, the woman was Pratt's girlfriend carol (laughs) the two later married and lived in malibu california (laughs) keep the great podcast coming and please add a laugh track so i know when to laugh okay we'll do that right here go ahead guys 
Stan sent a link to an interview from the Television Academy. And I want to play just a snippet of this audio from this interview from Stanford Titchler talking about this. Carol Pratt was uh, our, our laugh man. And he had his full box of laughs. And he could play any laugh at anything. He plugged right into the, the switchboard. And he would insert his laughs. Was it electronic? How did it actually work? No, the people laughing. The people, the people, they were on, uh, on tape. As a matter of fact, the, the people that were laughing were probably dead for 20 years when they were laughing at MASH. And you know, the, the Carol Pratt took that box of laughs and sold them door to door, I think, in around Beverly Hills. <laughs> they were comics that bought them. <laughs> Bad comics bought them, actually. Not the good ones. <laughs> Not the good ones. Interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't know there was a man named Carol Pratt who walked in and, and put the uh, laughs. I didn't. That's very interesting. I learned something. You learn something every day on MASH Matters. It's incredible. It's an incredible podcast. <laughs> Love to be a part of it. So from Josh, <laughs> Jeff and Ryan, according to IMDB, and if any, anybody doesn't know, IMDB is a website. You can go and look up everybody in show business and find out anything from their shows they've been in to the size of their uh, house and whatever you want to know. Oh, I didn't know what you were going to say there. We'll okay. be right back. <laughs> Jeff is in the car. According to IMDB, Jeff was on an episode of The Waltons. I was. Larry Linville was married to a daughter of Will Gear. That's Grandpa Walton. But it looks like they were divorced a year or two before Jeff was on the episode. Curious if that connection was ever discussed between Jeff and Will or is too insignificant or personal. Also, a while back, you had an episode where you discussed how actors are paid. Thank you for giving us a peek behind that curtain. It made me wonder if an actor is able to tell which specific episodes or airings contribute to a residual check. For example, would an actor receive a communication that MeTV played season X, episode X of Mama's Family three times in the month of December, and that is why you are receiving the residual check? Or is it a more generic description? Thanks for the show. It's awesome. P.S. Did Jeff ever win a free drink at residuals? <laughs> okay. Well, let's go back, back to Grandpa Walton. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Grandpa Walton and Will Gear didn't give a darn what I thought or wanted to tell me anything. <laughs> I don't think he knew I existed. So, no, there was no connection ever made between Larry Linville, married to the daughter of Will Gear. You know, when you guest on a show, unless you're hired to do a number of weeks or your 13 weeks or the two years or whatever it is, you're pretty much in and out. You know, you show up at nine and you, they shoot the scenes as fast as possible and they get you home so they don't have to pay you anymore because <laughs> <laughs> you're being paid by various time increments and they want to cut that down as low as they can mm -hmm. with people who are guest stars if they're, you know, part of the show, no, that's a whole different contractual agreement. But guess no, you're in and out. So my appearance in the Waltons took probably about four and a half hours, and I got no opportunity to talk to Will Gear about Larry Linville or anything. So gotcha. Now, how actors are paid. Yes, it is revealed what show you're getting the check for. Okay. So you, I will get a list. Like let's say I get a list of you know 15 shows mash. And it'll show the episode, actually. Hmm. And it'll show the 14 cents that I'm getting for that episode. <laughs> then I, I can get checks, individual checks for things like The Waltons or Starsky and Hutch or you know various other shows that I did. Mm -hmm. And it will show, here's your, your other 63 cents from The Waltons. So yes, you know what show that 
residual came from. Not only the show itself, the title of the show, but also the title of the episode. So that's pretty good. And that's all kind of governed by the Screen Actors Guild, who does a pretty darn good job of keeping track of all that. It's a hard thing to do, but they do a good job at keeping track through it. Probably they miss some stuff, and there have been a lot of uh, reports that actors go after things that they feel they missed, and Screen Actors Guild, you know, investigates it and says, hey, no, you are owed more money, we're going to get it for you, and they pay the actor. Hmm. So Screen Actors Guild is a pretty good organization that does a really, uh, in my opinion anyway, a very wonderful job of helping actors, you know, keep track of the residuals and know what the heck is going on. And That is impressive. Yep. We know the names. We know the episodes. We know the whole thing. So yes. the most important question though, <laughs> did you ever win a free drink at residuals, the bar? I don't remember. I just was there. <laughs> I was drinking so much. I don't remember whether it was free or not. No, I, I did. I did get a couple of free drinks. Yes, I did. It was fun. That was a fun place. I missed residuals really nice but i did get a couple of free drinks nice all right moving on this one's coming to us from steve jerg now steve has written us several emails and they all have a lot of great ideas and they're all very long and i'm not complaining about that <laughs> but i'm gonna get through this as quickly as i can and i'm, I'm gonna paraphrase a lot of this so i'll be in the car i'll be, I'll be in the car. <laughs> I'm sorry. i've been carving up for this today okay because i knew that this right. was a marathon not a sprint all right so steve has sent us several ideas for some theme episodes there's a lot of information here he says so maybe you can use parts of it however you would like. The topic is plot devices used in the first three seasons that show up again in later seasons. Most of them change a bit, perhaps changing characters involved or the specific circumstances. I guess it's true that there really are only very few plot devices available for writers to use. So enjoy. So he goes through and lists 29 different categories of (laughs) plot devices that are used over and over again in MASH. I am not going to go through all 29, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to hit a few of these and then we will put Steve's entire list, all the research he did, because he did some extensive research here. Yeah, he did. We will copy and paste this into our show notes for this episode at mashmatters.com. But he does bring up a good point. There are many different plot devices that were used multiple times, but I didn't realize it was this long of a list. So he brings up uh, splitting up the 4077. That's used in Divided We Stand and then Rumor at the Top. The whole campus sick is something that's used in Carry On Hawkeye and also, again, the Yellow Brick Road. Characters on trial. Of course, we have the trial of Henry Blake. We have the general flipped at dawn. We have the Novocaine mutiny and then snap judgment and snappier judgment. You have racism dealt with in Dear Dad 3, the general flipped at dawn, the tooth shall set you free. Even he even goes so far as to highlight picking up dirty items in Tokyo. (laughs) So you have in Rainbow Bridge, you have Tropper and Hawkeye planning to go to Tokyo and Henry asks them to get some prints from a bookstore. And then in The Colonel's Horse, Potter is meeting Mildred in Tokyo and Hawkeye asks him to pick up some dirty magazines. (laughs) Which, of course, he has Mildred do it for him. So you have so many different plot devices here. Friendly fire. War veteran Doc cracks under stress. High-ranking female officer inspects nurses. Medicine by textbook. There's so much here. Steve, I'm really, really impressed. Thank you for doing this for us. But there is no way that I can read all of this. I'm already starting to feel a little woozy. (laughs) Again, we will paste all of this, his entire list, over in our show notes for this episode. Just pack a lunch when you read it because (laughs) there's a lot there. Yeah. Okay, let's go to a voicemail from our great listener, Spencer. Yeah, this is 
Spencer Kelly. I'm calling from St. George, Utah. I am a big fan of MASH, and I really have enjoyed listening to your podcast, MASH Matters. We were listening to it as we were out driving around this afternoon, finding a geocache. We are big into geocaching. I don't know if you know about geocaching, but we listen to other podcasts pertaining to geocaching. But we have hidden geocaches named after different MASH themes. In fact, we have a cache not far from where we live that's called the Steel MASH Cache. And we've got another MASH-themed caches that are named after MASH characters, MASH themes, and just MASH episodes and other things related to MASH. But that's one of our things about geocaching is if we have an idea for a different MASH-themed cache, we will hide a MASH-themed cache. But I just wanted to let you know, all right, thanks again for a great podcast, and here's looking up your old address. I, I'm sorry, I missed the term. Was that geocaching? Is that what he said? Yes, geocaching. Is that like bitcoins? Uh, I'm not <laughs> sure. I don't know what bitcoins are either. I, I have friends who do geocaching, but I've never understood what geocaching is. And so I actually had to go and look it up. Okay. This is from geocaching.com. Geocaching is a real-world outdoor treasure hunting game using GPS-enabled devices. Participants navigate to a specific set of GPS coordinates and then attempt to find the geocache, also known as a container, hidden at that location. So that's what geocaching is. Somebody will leave a container with a little gift or a note or a trinket at a certain location and then issue these GPS coordinates. Who knows? It's somewhere out in the world. You get these coordinates and you go out and you attempt to find these containers. And I, I guess when you find one, you can then leave one for somebody else to find. I've never done it. I wouldn't know how to even begin to do it. I want to be careful here. I don't want to tick off any geocachers out there the same way that we ticked off all the yarn people a few episodes back. <laughs> that was that's, that was too bad. I still regret that. Yeah. The letters we got from yarn people was just, <laughs> oh boy, yowie. But evidently Spencer and his wife like to do MASH-themed caches when they go geocaching. So I guess when they're leaving these uh, geocaches out in the woods or wherever they're going, they're MASH-themed. I don't know what those themes are. He didn't go into specifics about you know what they're actually leaving. But I love how MASH MASH fans figure out ways to incorporate MASH into their hobbies, the things they love to do. Yeah. If there are other MASH geocachers out there, uh, let us know. And maybe uh, you and Spencer can go out and uh, do some geocaching someday. Absolutely. I have no idea what I'm talking about right now. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> no clue. <laughs> That's how I feel when I read the uh, description for Bitcoin. Yeah. I have no idea what I'm reading. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's fun. It, it actually does sound kind of fun. I get that. That would be a fun thing to do. All right, moving on. This is from Halloween Rules 15. That's the only way I have to describe who this person is because uh, they didn't actually give us their name. Hi, guys. Absolutely love your podcast. A quick question. I've been watching MASH from the beginning, and I've seen every episode many times over, but today I noticed something new. In the episode where Margaret and Donald get married, most of the cast is playing basketball in the compound, but they are joined by a beautiful redhead headed woman who I never spotted in another episode. Any idea who that was? Keep up the great work. You have one of the best podcasts around. Well, thank you, Halloween Rules 15. So the redhead in question, you say that you never spotted her in another episode, but... 
She was actually on the show as an extra for five years. Her name is Mary Peters. Yeah. 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 Uh Uh-oh, I think we may have started something here. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Say her name again. Just do it slowly. Mary Peters. Yeah. (laughs) So, Jeff, what do you remember about Mary Peters? Ah, Mary Peters. Well, Mary Peters was a part of the MASH family. She was great. She was there for a number of years. A really wonderful person, wonderful woman. We had uh, always a good time. She contributed a lot. She was always enthusiastic. She did have beautiful red hair. And I think, um, you know, because she was supposed to be uh, in Korea during a war, she had that hair all tucked up under her hat for the most part, like I did. Whatever hair I had, I shoved up under my hat too. But she had a lot more hair than I did, and she would keep it under the hat. But uh, every once in a while, she'd take that hat off and let it go, you know, fall down. And it's pretty impressive. It was very beautiful. And I think that's probably why it attracted uh, the attention of a number of people, because it was very striking. She's a lovely, lovely woman. So my hat's off to <laughs> Mary Peters anytime she wants to take her hat off. <laughs> she went on to be a stunt woman. Yes, yes. Also. Well, she did some on the show, actually. She did a couple of things. Oh. Yeah, she did a little bit. And that's what she was trying to be. She wanted to be a stunt woman. She did a little bit of that. Yeah. She was very active. Yeah. So go ahead. She, I didn't know. Did she go on to do other shows and stuff as a stunt person? Yeah, she had a career as a stunt woman. She doubled for uh, Vanessa Redgrave and Lynn Redgrave, Sigourney Weaver, Joan Cusack, Lindsay Wagner, to name a few. And uh, then in 2000, she and her husband moved to Oklahoma, and I believe she's still there playing golf and doing community work and interior design. Oh, interesting. Great. Mary, if you're listening, uh, feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to talk to you. Yeah, we would. And then in that particular episode, Potter does introduce her as Lieutenant Peters. So mm-hmm. her real name was her character's name. Cool. And uh, from Mark. Mark says, hello, Jeff and Ryan. I'm reading Killing Reagan by Bill O'Reilly. And he says when Reagan became governor of California, he sold his Malibu Reds to 20th Century Fox. According to O'Reilly, 20th Century Fox filmed movies and TV shows on Reagan's former ranch. He mentions Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid as being filmed there. Plus, O'Reilly says MASH was filmed at Reagan's former ranch. Jeff, did you know Governor Reagan and a few years later, President Reagan owned the MASH location? Uh, no, I did not know that. I don't know that all of that was what he sold to them. I'm not sure how much of what he owned became the ranch that they shot all those movies. I I don't know. Ryan, do you know? (laughs) I did a little bit of research. I looked into this and yes, uh, back in 1966, now this is a month after he was elected governor of California, Ronald Reagan sold his Malibu ranch to 20th Century Fox. And the reason he sold his ranch is because he needed to pay off some campaign debts. He couldn't afford to pay the property taxes on the ranch because he had spent so much on his campaign to be elected governor of California. At the time, his state salary was $44,000. Now adjusted for inflation today, that would be $355,000. And evidently, Reagan made $1.8 million profit on the deal, which today would be about $14 million. So uh, yes, he did sell his ranch in Malibu to 20th Century Fox, and part of that became the Fox Ranch. Like you, Jeff, I don't know if all of that was what made up the Fox Ranch or a portion of it. I don't know if the 
MASH filming location was a part of that land that Reagan owned. But yes, Ronald Reagan did sell part of his ranch to 20th Century Fox, which then became the Fox Ranch. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know either. It never came up. Uh, Nobody ever said, you know, when we were there, hey, this used to belong to, you know, Ronald Reagan. There is a lot of property out there. It would be surprising that he would own all of that property, Mm -hmm. but maybe he did. If he did, boy, he didn't make enough money selling it. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff out there. All that Bonzo money wasn't enough to pay for his (laughs) campaign. Had to make the money somewhere. (laughs) Bedtime for Bonzo. Yeah, that's great. Moving on. This is from Arthur from Centerville, Utah. Ryan and Jeff, over the last few months, I have been thinking about looming questions I have. Some are bigger than others, but one thought sticks out the most. Igor was never the cook. Oh, okay. Bear with me. I think this actually improves the canon of Jeff's cookbook. In Morale Victory, Igor tells the camp he's not the cook. The cook is over at Rosie's eating. In the Long John Flap, and towards the day after Christmas, we see two different cooks. Igor was assigned to KP duty and served the food, but in the end, he was just a private. Igor was actually a good cook, but was never allowed to cook because he was a private. This is why the cookbook makes sense. Igor was a good cook and made a cookbook after the war. In my humble opinion, Jeff's cookbook improves Igor's canon. When you apply this theory, I would love to know your thoughts. Do you think this works? Thanks again for making MASH Matters. I watch MASH almost daily, and I have a renewed love for the side stories. Watching MASH has become an even better show after hearing your stories. Well, thank you, Arthur. Now, Jeff, you get five minutes for rebuttal. Well, I'm a little offended uh, that Arthur is talking about Igor's canon. Um, I don't know what gives him the right that he feels comfortable enough to do that. Uh, yes. Well, the conceit of my book when I wrote the book was that Igor was actually a really good cook and he wasn't allowed to do it and he didn't have a chance to do it. Uh, so that's why he wrote a book to to prove that he was a good cook and could cook really wonderful recipes. So that was what the book was about. Hmm. But he wasn't a cook. Although, you know, you think about it, there were, I think there were comments about my cooking. So it was a gray area a little bit because there were a couple of people brought in and one guy, I can't think of his name, he played the cook. Mm-hmm. And I do say, I'm not the cook, he's eating at Rosie's. So that's true. But, you know, the guy's in the kitchen, he's pulling food out. And so you kind of go, oh, well, he's here. He probably, he was there for nine years, so he probably cooked something. Right. <laughs> I mean, give him a break. And you certainly took the blame for it. I did. I did. So, yes, Arthur, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> and leave Igor's cannon alone, Arthur. This is not something you should be talking about. All right, let's go back to the phones. Here's another voicemail, this one coming to us from Cody. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Ron. This is Cody. I'm from Inez, Kentucky. First off, I'd like to say I'm a big fan of MASH. Uh, I've been watching it ever since I was little. I can remember listening to the theme song while my dad was watching it. My question for you all is, would you put a season in between three and four where he would have had Frank Burns as the commanding officer? I personally feel this would have been an interesting thing to do, uh, having Frank in charge, having him trying to do military discipline on a group of uh, draftee surgeons. I would love to hear what you all think. I have mixed feelings about this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Would I like another season between three and four? Well, sure, because that would mean I'd get more mash. Would I want an entire season where Frank is in charge? I don't know if I would want an entire season. 
Now, I wouldn't mind if they had explored that for a few more episodes. We only saw Frank in charge really for two episodes, and those two episodes were the part one and part two season openers of season four, Welcome to Korea. Frank is in charge for those, and then Potter comes in in the third episode of that season. I I think I... I would have liked to have seen maybe four or five episodes where Frank is in charge so that we could see how he would have handled everything before Potter came in to fix everything. But I don't know that I could have handled 22, 24 episodes of Frank being in charge of the 4077. Jeff, what do you think? I couldn't agree more. I would I would love to have seen another four or five episodes with him being the, the commander because it, it would have put so much pressure and we would have seen so much more interesting behavior from everybody else. And how they dealt with him, you know, continuing that position. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it would have been a lot of fun and tantalizing <laughs> mm-hmm. to have him stay there for a while and just pretty much drive everybody nuts. Yeah. It would be some kind of good stories to have them try and figure out what to do with him and how to avoid him and how to deal with him as, as the uh, company commander. Four or five more episodes, yeah. But I agree again, the whole season would have been probably overkill. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Would have been fun. All right, and this one coming from Jeff. Not you, Jeff Maxwell, but a a different Jeff. All right. Hi, Jeff and Ryan. I've heard a couple of stories recently of how the show figuratively saved the lives of some viewers who were mired in some terribly dark days and personal tragedy. So I thought you might find my story interesting. In short, MASH literally, physically saved my life. Wow. Here's how. Back in 1987, I was a college freshman, and one night my roommate and I were eating a pepperoni pizza. I was tremendously thirsty and down something like five Cokes and couldn't quench my thirst, which I thought was weird, but chalked it up to the pepperoni being salty. A couple hours later, we tuned in to the nightly MASH rerun after the local news, which we did every night, and the season four episode Smiling Jack aired. In that episode, written by Larry Gelbart and Simon Muttner, a helicopter pilot gets grounded because he is a type 1 diabetic. In one scene, the pilot explains to Hawkeye and BJ that he is always thirsty. Ding! A light bulb flickered above my head and I thought, I wonder if I'm thirsty because I'm diabetic. The next morning, I dropped by the walk-in medical clinic on campus and asked the nurse if I could possibly be diabetic. She said, let's find out, and did a finger prick blood test. 30 seconds later, she added, you need to go to the hospital now. Oh, Mind you, normal blood sugar levels are around 80 to 100. Mine was 940. Wow. I spent the next week in the hospital confirming the type 1 diabetes diagnosis and learning how to manage the disease. I must have had a dozen doctors tell me that I shouldn't have been alive with a 940 blood sugar, say nothing of being conscious and feeling okay. Think about this for a second. If I had not seen that exact episode out of 251 episodes on that exact night with that exact dialogue, I would absolutely be dead. So MASH quite literally saved my life. Wow. Wow. What a story. Oh my gosh. This letter goes on for a while and he goes on to tell a story. There was a, um, and Jeff, you were on this. It was a bulletin board, a Usenet online group where MASH fans could go and post questions. And I know that you would go on there sometimes and answer questions. And and also Larry Gelbart himself would go on. Yeah. This is many years ago with kind of the first chance everybody got to kind of contribute. It's kind of like a party line. We'd never seen anything like this. So we could all talk to each other. It was a news group, a MASH news group. And there 
are all kinds of different categories from, you know, fix your Chevy to everything else. So if you, whatever interest you had, you go on there and talk to people with the, with like interest. So there was a MASH news group. I did it. It was a lot of fun. And Larry Gelbart was on there all the time. Yeah. I learned a lot at reading all the, you know, questions that he answered. So it was really interesting. Yeah. Long story short, he posts to Larry Gelbart himself about this story. And Larry Gelbart comes back saying in all of his years of working in the industry, that story was the most meaningful that he had ever received. Then he goes on to say that he and Larry strike up a a relationship online. Jeff asks Larry, who do you think is one of the best writers right now? Larry says, this kid Sorkin, here's the music, is what he says. He's talking about Aaron Sorkin, who was the creator and writer of The West Wing. Jeff, at Larry's encouragement, writes a spec script for The West Wing. Jeff actually sends the script to Larry Gelbart. Larry Gelbart gives him notes on the script. I mean, it's an amazing story, and it really speaks to Larry Gelbart's generosity. And so uh, thank you, Jeff, for the great story. And um, I am a huge Aaron Sorkin fan. I love Aaron Sorkin, his writing. I am a West Wing fan. Aaron Sorkin is just an amazing writer. Not too long ago, Wired Magazine did a Q&A on YouTube with Aaron Sorkin. Somebody asked him if you could go back and and write an episode of any TV show, what would that be? And he listed a couple of shows, but first and foremost, he said that he would have loved to have written an episode of MASH. Later in the Q&A, somebody asks if he was influenced by other movies or TV shows. And here is part of Aaron Sorkin's answer. Uh, I've been influenced by a lot of uh, TV shows. Pretty much any good television show today, I think a show that you would consider good, is following in the footprints that Larry Gelbart left when he created the TV series MASH. He was the first one to say that sitcoms don't have to be sitcoms. You know, they don't have to be silly. You know, just because they're funny, they can tell real stories and uh, and moving stories. So I would say that I was heavily influenced by uh, Larry Gelbart, to be sure. Wow. I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier in that when the MASH episodes were released on DVD and you could turn off the laugh track, it worked. It worked because of Larry Gelbart's genius. It doesn't work for other comedies of the day. Larry was in a class by himself. Thank you, Jeff, for your story, because that gave me an opportunity to share that tidbit from Aaron Sorkin himself. What a great compliment. I, I wish Larry could hear that because that would be so meaningful. He was such an incredible human being and so down to earth. He wasn't one of those, you know, fancy schmancy guys because he was just because he was brilliant and a genius and was, you know, an executive producer of a show and doing all the things that an executive producer does and having all that, quote, power. Boy, he couldn't have been just a more down to earth, nice guy. I'm very fortunate just to have been 30 feet away from him sometimes, but let alone actually sometimes saying his words and talking to him and hanging out with him and hearing what he had thought about things. It, It was just a remarkable moment and a remarkable experience for me. And to know that he was in, you know, he came from like the show of shows or working with Sid Caesar and uh, Mel Brooks and Neil Simon and hanging out with all those people. And my gosh, what an experience. And coming out of that and being as brilliant as he was to, you know, eventually create the the pilot for MASH and write it for four years. He was a remarkable guy. I mean, I wish I, I, I run out of adjectives. I'm not brilliant enough to say all the things I feel about him and how wonderful it was for me to be a part part of his life yeah uh and and an experience is great really and he's he was a true genius he really was hey we have a big announcement 
but first, we want to salute our Patreon VIPs. We would like to thank Private Jen Gibbons, Corporal Catherine Mostello, Captain Joanna Gorman, Captain Jim Sly, Captain Johnny Molson, and newly promoted Major Megan Bridget. Thank you. You can also enlist as a Mash Matters VIP. Just go to mashmatters.com slash support. Can I ask a question about Johnny Molson? Do, do, Johnny, do you make beer? Are you the, <laughs> from the beer people? Call us if you are. I want to talk to you. I know Johnny, and I know that you're not the first person to ever ask him that question. Oh. No, no. Johnny's not as much into beer as he is into shamrock shakes from McDonald's. <laughs> I'm not kidding either. Johnny has a real thing. I mean, we may have to stage an intervention. Yikes. Well, if he's never tasted beer, maybe we should get him some. I didn't say he's never tasted beer. Oh, okay. I'm just saying if he had his choice, I think, between a bottle of Molson's or a Shamrock Shake, he's going to go with the Shamrock Shake every time. You know, to each his own. Okay, so we have a big announcement. Actually, there's two announcements. This is a two-part announcement. First, we are going to take a short break. Oh, good. I get to lay down for a couple of days. We release new episodes on the 1st and the 15th of every month. And we've been doing that pretty much without fail, except for I think this might be the third time we will have missed a date since we started this podcast two and a half years ago. That's a pretty good track record, I think. I'm not complaining. No. I love doing this, but it's a lot of work. We do a lot of work to put these episodes together, and we're so thankful, again, to our Patreon VIPs who support the work. Thank you. You make this show possible. But every now and then, we need to take just a quick little break. Yeah. The next episode was supposed to come out on April 1st, and it will not come out on April 1st. Our next episode after that will come out on April 15th. If you're listening sometime in the future to old episodes, this won't matter a lick to you. It's amazing we do time travel and every we talk about MASH and we do time travel here. This is great. Okay, so we're going to take a short break. But when we come back from that break, we're going to come back with something really special. We have a special guest returning to MASH Matters. Her encore appearance. The lovely and talented Loretta Swit. She's coming back. She agreed to come back uh, somewhat enthusiastically, which was a little surprising because, you know, <laughs> but we're very excited to have her back. Yeah, very excited. The first time we had her on, we put the call out to listeners to give us some questions. And we had a lot of great questions come in. And we ended up only asking a couple of those questions. Well, she's coming back and we're going to ask some more of those original listener questions <laughs> that we got the first time that we weren't able to get to. So that's exciting that we can highlight some more listener questions with the lovely and talented Loretta Swit, who will be back on our next episode on April 15th. We're looking forward to that. Now, so during the break, much good luck with that heart transplant. I hope it goes well. Thank you. They've pretty much got that down now. Yes. And to you, I I hope all goes well with the maintenance of your cannon. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, thank you. I, uh, I hope it fires at will. But sir, the angle. <laughs> but sir, the angle. We will be back with Loretta Swit. Until then, here's looking up your old address. <laughs> <laughs> 